Hey everybody. On this episode of the PTL, we sit down with Dr. Becky Thomas, the 2019 recipient of the President's Award for Excellence in Teaching, to talk about community-engaged learning and how we can use these methods as a way to empower our students both in and out of the classroom. Becky also talks about her faculty student roundtables as part of the upcoming Pashi West Virtual Conference on Teaching and Learning, December 8th and 9th, 2020. Take a listen. Hi, welcome back, everyone. Um, we're starting to wrap up the semester pretty quickly here, so I hope everyone's doing well still. I hope classes are still going well, and I hope that you're looking forward uh, to wrapping things up, getting to spend some time with family and friends in whatever capacity we're able to do that. But first, today, our guest, uh, Dr. Becky Thomas, Associate Professor in the Department of Parks, Conservation, and Rec Therapy, is joining us. Dr. Thomas, nice to have you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we are going to talk today about the service learning aspect, You know, some of your professional experiences with service learning, how you incorporate that into your classroom today, especially in the time of virtual classrooms. And, uh, and some things that you have going on and obviously some things that, that you have coming up that we're really excited about. Uh, 2019 President's Award for Excellence in Teaching. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. It's awesome. PhD in Human Dimensions of Natural Resources from Colorado State University. Bachelor of Science in Wildlife and Fishery Sciences from Penn State University. And you joined the faculty at SRU here back in 2015. So... It only took you a few years to get that top award for excellence in teaching. That's awesome. I may have peaked. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, I highly doubt that. <laughs> All right. So we do want to talk service learning because it is unique, right? So recently, if, if you haven't heard... SRU was just recognized. We had a big recognition, Carnegie Classification for Service Learning. Um, that was a big deal. For those of you that weren't familiar with the process, the application, the review, that's a big recognition for us. And Becky, I know you've been involved with service learning. Um, you've ran our FLCs that focus on service learning. You've worked closely with Jeffrey. And so I just if you could just talk to us about sort of where we're at as a university in terms of service learning. Sure, absolutely. So in terms of service learning, it's been really exciting to see the evolution of this practice at SRU. Jeffrey was hired, I think, the year after I was. And so I was able to see how the Office of Community Engaged Learning really helped to elevate our practice and, and help to unify us as a campus around this idea of service learning and community engaged learning more broadly, but really helping our students to understand the community as context for what they're doing in the classroom. And for me, half of my teaching load is in an online master's program. So we actually have two online master's degrees through my department. There's a master's of science in park resource management and a master's of education in environmental education. And our students in those programs are working professionals, which means, you know, they're not necessarily located here in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. So one of the things that's been on my mind recently is how can I bring 
community engaged learning into an online classroom where my students are not necessarily a part of my community geographically. And so what do we even mean when we talk about community as a university and the transition to, you know, a lot of online teaching modalities in the face of COVID-19, I think has forced a lot of us to get into that mindset when we think about what service learning looks like in our classrooms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like it or not, this this pedagogy isn't going anywhere. This modality isn't going anywhere. We may be forced into it in the spring and back into the virtual field. But, you know, Brian, we've talked about this before. The things, these technologies, these tools, these these instructional strategies, they're not just going to vanish when we come back into the classroom. So it is a good point, right? So how do we then keep up these community-engaged practices in an online setting? Like, What is the conversation that's going on now? Well, so for my undergraduate classes, which would typically be in person under normal circumstances, it's important to realize that when I talk about teaching in the field, I'm literally in a field. <laughs> I teach <laughs> I teach our wildlife and wildlands right. field methods and management class. So the students are collaborating with state parks here in our local area. We've had some ongoing projects at Maurice K. Goddard State Park looking at American woodcock migration and habitat conservation. We've worked with Marine State Park and McConnell's Mill State Park um, around some of their resource management issues. Um, Eastern Hemlock, Woolly Adelphi, and um, Jennings Environmental Education Center and some of their efforts to restore the prairie ecosystem and the impacts of those management strategies on the endangered Massasauga rattlesnake. So um, my classes are working on some of those kinds of hands-on projects. And I think for the students, it helps them to understand how what they're learning in the classroom applies in the field and to feel like they're actually collecting data and doing research that is going to help inform management at those places, it helps to raise the stakes for them beyond getting a grade in class, right? They know that these park managers are counting on them to provide information that can help to inform management. So last spring, when, you know, we transitioned to being fully online, right in the middle of these projects, and I unfortunately didn't have a chance to, you know, take a breath and think about what this was going to look like in an online setting. Um, so we, we had to kind of abandon ship on some of those projects and, and make some changes to how we approach the rest of the semester, given the situation we were in. Um, for next semester, I have already started conversations with the partners at the parks to think about what this is going to look like for our students. And, you know, given that the class is going to be synchronous online in the spring, how can I still maybe create some opportunities for the students to get out to the parks if they're local? If they're not local, are there some other things that they can be doing, um, like examining existing literature and that type of thing to um, to help move forward with this research in that way? Um, So that's an example from the undergrad class with the grad classes. Uh, the students are in a position of, you know, really identifying their own partners. And so for many of our grad students, they're already working at an agency. So they have those potential partnerships already in place. But our graduate program also tends to attract a lot of what we like to call career changers. So these are people that started out doing something different. And then they realize, who am I fooling? I want to be outside. (laughs) 
I want to be doing something in nature. And so I'm going to go back and get my master's degree in park management so that I can pursue that goal. And so for those students, because they're in an online program, it's really important for us to think about how to build some of those professional connections into the program. Um, And so last spring, one of the things that I did in my environmental issues class was a community engaged learning project that was essentially a systematic review of literature, but it was um, organized in a way that allowed the students to produce um, kind of like a visual executive summary, so a more creative way to organize their findings and to connect the practitioners who might not have access to uh, databases with peer-reviewed journals, for example, to the scientific research that the students could access by virtue of their uh, position at SRU and kind of understanding how to aggregate and analyze that information and spit it back out to the practitioners in a way that makes sense and can inform management. Because that's really the goal is, you know, we are uh, in a a field that is very applied. So the things that we do in our field need to have some type of tangible connection to management goals or objectives on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. I mean, in higher education, we sort of take for granted access to all those databases and all that research. And that stuff's expensive. I know the library shells out a lot of money to get us access to those things. And not only that, it's not very applicable. I shouldn't say applicable, accessible, not just in terms of being able to click on the link, but the way that much information is presented in academia. I mean, we've all experienced this problem. We know people that have experienced this problem. They're just not interested in reading research papers. And so I think that's important is that having that connection or that, 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 Ability to take the information and, and allow our partners to be able to use it is really important because I think for me, service learning is it's very much a give and take relationship, right? It's not just our students going out in the community and learning. It's us being able to provide to the community and us learning from the community at the same time. And yeah, I can imagine your discipline that is... I, would, I don't want to say, I don't want to take it for granted and say it's natural because I know how much time and effort you've put into this, but I can see those partnerships being easier to form than in some other disciplines. So I guess what are the main principles or what are the things that, you know, when you're talking to someone, I'm in the College of Education, right? So it's easy. We can go into a public school, right? We do it all the time for field classes, but, you know, I'm not going to pick on a department or I no, can't pick, pick on one communication. Out of Pick on communication because I, I struggle with that every once in a while. I mean, I know we're, we're blessed to have Doug Strahler, who, you know, was the faculty fellow for OSEL. And I mean, it was great to work with him and him and I have talked about a lot of things. But sometimes I, I think like, what can I do to, to increase that? So, no, go ahead. Pick on it. I'll, I'll open it up. Pick on communication or any discipline that comes to mind. I mean, community engaged learning is all about collaboration. And as a scholar, as a researcher, that is a huge area of emphasis for me. So I study the practice and the outcomes of collaborative conservation. So thinking about natural resources, how we take care of the planet, and how we can do that in a way that is collaborative between the researchers and the practitioners who understand how to manage that resource and the community members who are going to be impacted by those management decisions. So I came into service learning from that lens. And so a lot of the things that I would do as a researcher in that area 
directly carry over into a service learning context. And it starts with relationships, right? It starts with, you know, going out for a coffee or a drink, or maybe we're doing it virtually now um, because of COVID, but, you know, where you're interacting with someone from the community and you are um, identifying things that each of you can contribute, Right. And so it's not just about, well, I'm going to bring in my students from the university and we're going to do all of these wonderful things for you because there are deficits. Right. It's flipping that narrative and thinking about, like, what are the assets that this community has that can help to enhance the experience for my students? And what are the assets that my students have that can help to enhance whatever it is that the community is trying to do. So I think any relationship with a community partner has to start there in identifying those shared assets. And um, I know for the wildlife and wildlands management example, the park managers really gain a lot of awesome things from interacting with the students, right? I've had students that have gotten hired into internship positions because of the relationships they built during that class. And, you know, as someone who has been in a position where I've needed to hire student interns in the past, when you get a good one, it's it's a good thing, right? And so for them to have that kind of direct line to um, some of our students that would excel and thrive in those types of positions and be able to hire them, you know, as a result of their experience in the class, that's definitely a win-win. So it's looking for those win-win opportunities and you can't get there if you don't have the relationship built first. Yeah, yeah I'm so glad you brought up that. Oh, sorry, Brian. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just going to maybe have see if you could unpack a little bit more about the the distinction between, and I think you, you already touched on this a little bit, is the distinction between uh, service learning and community-engaged learning. And I think it's that, that sense of reciprocity where it's not just students sweeping in to save the day when they find a deficit, but it's really that the reciprocity of the relationship. Right. And it's understanding how, you know, you can think about volunteering or community service. Um, How are those experiences going to help me as the instructor to achieve my course outcomes? So I don't want them just out there logging hours. I want them doing something that is going to meaningfully connect to those outcomes. And one of the really cool things that I've started doing with the partners for the wildlife management class is actually talking about those course outcomes and co-creating a new set of outcomes that can go right alongside the course outcomes. But like, okay, here are the things that I need to make sure my students are getting academically what do you think they need? Like from your perspective as a practitioner in the field, what are some things that are important to you? And then we match them up and we make sure that the partners have an equal voice in deciding what is important for the students to know. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you brought up the asset deficit, just the mindset there that you approach this as, as one, it is a collaboration, but two, I have something to offer, but more importantly, you have something to offer. You know, oftentimes we get in the, we hear the phrase service, service learning, and we get in that service mentality as in we're going to come in and save the day. Like it's the savior model, right? Like, but it is, it's, it's important to know that it's important for our students to know that, look, we're not going in to just fix their problems. We're going in to, to see how we can help them, but in the same time, they're going to help us. And I, and I love the, the idea that they contribute to, what you are going to end up teaching or what your course outcomes are going to be and how that changes that direction. I I think that ties in nicely with 
the idea of you wanting to provide your students with a sense of voice and a sense of community in your classroom. Um, I have the privilege of reviewing all grant applications that are submitted for the CTL. And last year in your grant application, I'm going to read you a little quote here. Um, I'm interested in empowering students to take ownership of not only their learning, but of the classroom climate. That was fantastic. I said that. That's awesome. You did say that. <laughs> no, you wrote it. I, I copied that. Yeah. I mean, I think that when students can be viewed as partners in the learning process, it makes the experience more meaningful for everyone. Right. And, and that's the thing too, is like, what do the students want to get out of the experience? And we talk about that in the wildlife management class um, early on beginning of the semester. Like, what do you want to learn from this experience? What are some goals that you have for yourself, not only in terms of course content, but you know, what do you want to see happen for this park? Like, do you want to come back someday with your kids or grandkids and like see the impacts of the work that you did? Um, what is that going to look like? And so I encourage them to think like not only kind of short term, yeah, you want to pass the class and, and get a grade, but my goal for them is always to make sure they have something they can put on their resume. Um, so like, let's be able to actually put this on there and you can talk about what you did and the, what you learned from the experience. Yeah. And you've really taken a lot of ownership in that statement. I mean, I, I know I read it from a grant application, but you've attended now the Wakansi conference that focuses on developing these relationships with students and, and giving them that sense of voice and that sense of empowerment. So can you talk about that experience and, and how that shaped what you do now? Yeah. So f first I, I want to say that students really love it when they find out that we don't have all the answers and <laughs> so, and this is true for me. It's true for the partners at the parks that work with me and my students. And, and that always comes up in conversations with students like, wow, it really stood out to me when, you know, this park manager that's got 20 years of experience stood up there and said that they didn't have all the answers and that they were learning too. Um, and that's what lifelong learning is all about, right? Like I would never want students to think that once you get your degree or whether that's, you know, bachelor's, master's, PhD, whatever, that you are somehow done. Um, and I think that's something right. that I've tried to really embody in my own professional experience is how can I continue to learn and grow over time? Because it keeps me excited about my job. It keeps me excited about teaching and our students are changing and the world around us is changing. So there's always more to learn, um, which is what motivated me to want to go to the Wakansi conference. And to say it's a conference is really not um, fully accurate. It's like summer camp for professors. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we have this, we have the certain, like when you hear the word conference in academia, you're like, Ugh. yeah, that is But this, your, your experience. And I've talked to you about this before. Your experience was not that. No, it was not. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the location for the conference is this beautiful camp on the shores of Lake Michigan. So you're waking up every morning, looking out across the water It is just this beautiful setting. We're surrounded by lots of nature, which I love, obviously, or I wouldn't be in the field <laughs> I'm in. Um, so that was awesome. And the, the really cool thing about it, though, is the people. And it's all faculty from different universities that are excited 
about teaching and learning. And it's like this palpable sense of energy when you get there because you know that everybody is there because they want to learn how to be better teachers and they want to share what they know with other people. Um, one of the things that happened at Wakanzi that I thought was really powerful was we were all organized into a series of dialogue groups, which I'm an introvert. So like the thought of small talk and networking with a bunch of people I don't know is pretty terrifying. <laughs> so I went to this conference with, um, Dr. Sarah Tours from Early Childhood Education. And so I had a buddy, right? She was the one that was like, hey, we should go to this conference. It looks cool. And uh, we were like rooming together and everything. They divided us up into different groups so that we were not in a group with someone from our home institution. And so that was like really intentional and Brian shaking his head. Oh, I don't know. do not but, like it. But no, 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 it gets better. So we got to meet with the people in that group I think eight times over the course of the conference for deep, meaningful conversation. It was amazing. Right now, now he's interested. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fellow introvert. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, we would go to our sessions and then we'd come together maybe like once a day with our dialogue group and get to talk about what we were learning and what we were taking away. And it was just really cool to form relationships with these people over time. We also had two students who were participating in our dialogue group. So here's where the student piece fits in because during the Wakanzi professor conference, there's also a student undergraduate conference that's happening at the same time. So it's a leadership conference for students. And one of the most meaningful sessions I attended at Wakanzi was facilitated by those students. And so it was like a series of small group conversations where the students were um, talking with us about different challenges that they face in the classroom and giving us a space to talk about challenges that we face in the classroom. And I think there are a lot of things about being a professor that students just don't realize is a thing, right? And so for me to be able to sure. talk with students about like, yeah, you know, imposter syndrome. Like that is something that I struggle with and I'm a first generation student slash professor. And so, you know, I'm constantly questioning whether or not I belong in this space. And there are things that, you know, can happen sometimes and things that students can do, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, that can cause me to ask those kinds of questions. And they don't always realize that. And we do the same things, right. That can cause sure. them to question whether or not they belong in this space. And so when we can come together and have those conversations and like really start to open up and listen to each other and think about like, what do we need to do to move forward to create a stronger community in our classrooms? And what is that going to look like for us? Like that's where growth can start to really take off and happen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the, the conversation is always important and it's something that I stress all the time to anyone that I talk to, students, colleagues, random people on the street, the idea of, you know, we don't learn when we're stressed. You know, that's just the way human beings are wired. We have to be comfortable. We have to feel a connection. We have to feel like we belong uh, within the group to, to for really deep, meaningful learning to, to occur. How does this look now that we're, we are in a virtual environment and we are staring down spring 2021, which we know is going to be in a virtual environment as well? So what are some things, or I guess, what are, what are your suggestions or tips for how you can still like, simulate that or, or recreate it even in this environment? 
Well, I was really lucky that before COVID, I already had a lot of experience teaching online um, because of the graduate program. And our graduate classes are uh, asynchronous online. So I was used right. to using, you know, mostly discussion boards, but, you know, engaging with students through D2L. And there's so much relationship building that can happen in that format. And it's amazing to see how the graduate students will go from the beginning of the semester and you can tell like, gosh, imposter syndrome is alive and well in graduate school. And it is even worse in an online graduate program where you don't have those face-to-face -face interactions with your peers and your professor. So I am constantly reminding myself of, you know, just being mindful of how I'm coming across in the ways that I'm communicating to my students through D2L. Um, this semester, I started experimenting with some video uh, for like video feedback for students. And, you know, we also need to be thinking as a community about the potential impacts of that on certain groups of faculty. And I will like quickly sure. put on my ABSCUF social justice um, committee chair hat for a minute and just say that until I was tenured, I was not comfortable being in video in front of my students because I am a woman. I also am very young appearing. And so especially with the graduate students, I was worried. Like I honestly was, I was like, I don't want them to like think that I'm not credible or that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and so I was really careful about that. And this year I'm just like, well, <laughs> how bad can it be? Right. Let's see what's going to happen. Um, and the students, the students love it. So they're like, this is awesome. Um, we really appreciate it. It takes a lot of time on my part to create those videos. Um, I think it's probably something that I'll continue to experiment with and tweak into the future, but it's really just that dialogue and that back and forth, you know, through online discussions to get them to treat the discussion board like a conversation instead of a format to submit their assignments. And so with the grad students, it usually takes them about, I would say like three or four weeks to kind of get it and to be like, oh, she wants us to actually engage with this, not just like one and done. I even say like no one and done, so that's not allowed. Um, I mean, you can do it, but you're not gonna get a good grade if you do, right? <laughs> um, and even in like the description for the assignment, I'll say like, pretend you're going to the coffee shop and you're meeting your friends and, you know, you get there a little bit late and you walk up to the table and everyone is already sitting there and having a conversation. You're not going to just like walk over and say something and walk away because that would be weird, right? You're going to like pull up a chair. You're going to sit down. You're going to listen huh. to what is being talked about. And then you're going to think about like, how do I insert myself into this conversation? Um, and so how can we listen, recreate that type of You say it exactly that way in your course. And the reason I know that is once again, I have acts. I don't know why I had access to one of your courses. But Probably promotion committee. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am not year. going to disclose how or why, how. <laughs> but I literally copied that, that statement, that Starbucks thing. Yeah. And I, that is now the directions to my discussion posts. I love it. Cause and I was even like, I wish that we could be in a trendy coffee shop with exposed brick and quinoa bowls, but we're in slippery rock. So we got Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I stole it. I copied and pasted it. I copied and pasted it from your, wherever you had it. And I posted it into my courses and I'm being completely serious. The, the amount of engagement and interaction in the discussion posts 
changed almost instantly from one course to the next. It was just like this little thing clicked. Like, oh yeah, that would be weird. This is supposed to be... And, and again, my approach changed after hearing your approach. But it, but it's true. It, it, I mean, that's a great way to, to just frame that, that conversation for our students, uh, regardless of you know, whether they're undergraduates or graduates. But yeah, I, I had to admit, I, I stole that one. It's okay. I think they get worried, too, about how they're going to come across in their communication to their professor. Um, and, you know, they don't want to be judged or be, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, this is an incomplete sentence or the period is out of place. And it's honestly like a discussion board post, like, yeah, you want to pay attention to professional conversation, but is that the point? Like, is that why I'm asking you to do this? And so I try to think about like, okay, is there, um, what's the point of this assignment? Is it, I want you to engage with the material. I want you to kind of like grapple with things a little bit. Like let's kind of work through some challenging areas together. Do I want you spending your, your energy focusing on creating a perfectly organized paragraph with a topic sentence? And the answer is no, like for a discussion board post, no, that is not what I want you to be doing. Um, Are there other places in the course where that needs to happen? Yes. But the discussion board isn't it. And so for them to start to feel comfortable in that relationship building, I think we have to think about where we can take some of the pressure off for our students. Absolutely. We have, I have that conversation occasionally with faculty and it's, it comes, it comes down to really thinking deeply about, you know, is this a learning activity or is this an assessment method? Right. And so oftentimes discussion boards in particular, you know, end up becoming an assessment method, but you really have to, you know, evaluate your, your, your learning objectives and and figure out, you know, what is it actually that you're trying to assess here? And, you know, oftentimes the discussion board is, is really just a learning activity. It's a low stakes opportunity for students to think critically about the content and be in dialogue with each other and hopefully, you know, form a, a, a common knowledge base around the topic that will then inform a more higher stakes assessment. For sure. And I, for yeah. the undergrad um, classes, you know, this semester is my first semester teaching synchronously using Zoom. So that has been a really fun adventure. Um, I have learned that some things that would take 10 minutes in the classroom take 30 minutes on Zoom. So I've had to adjust my expectations a little bit in terms of the amount of content I can cover in each class. Um, But I usually log in, you know, maybe 10 minutes early, 15 minutes early, and students will start to log in early too. And I just ask them how they are, like one at a time as they're logging in, like, how are you doing? How was your weekend? What's going on? And they love it. And I did a kind of mid-semester check-in with them. And uh, it's funny because we were actually talking about um, interpretation and environmental education. That's the focus of the class. And we were talking about Maslow's hierarchy and how, you know, we can't um, kind of achieve our highest selves if our basic needs are not met. And this is important for park visitors. Um, So you need to be thinking about that as an interpreter. But, you know, we also can look at our class as an example. And one of the students was like, yeah, like, like how you say hi to us every day and ask us how we are. (laughs) It's just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's amazing, right? (laughs) Like some things that you would normally take or some people take for granted. It's like, people don't do that like you don't say hi to people it's like what do you mean yeah (laughs) it's been so interesting like you said this is the first time that i've done 
synchronous classes via Zoom as well. And I found that some sections are different than others, but like even just like a, hey, how are you doing? Turns into a 30-minute conversation. And I love that. Like when they're talking about, you know, it could be something as like we're just at the time of the recording, we're just getting through registration. So like the stress is about that. Well, I don't know how we're doing registration or, hey, I just saw the email from the president that says we're, you know, 80% online for the spring. Can you explain that to me? You know, politics season. Like, can we talk about things like that? And we can't, we keep everything neutral, but you know, even down to like physically, how are you feeling? Did you self-care? Like we've had some awesome conversations. Sorry, not to interject, you know, or to, 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 to slow you down. But I mean, I just think that's such an interesting aspect of teaching that, I mean, we never learned that in, in, in any of our professional development, you know, you're going through your doctorate or anything like that. Like nobody preps for this, but it's such an important thing. Like you're saying, they just need that. It's just a great way to connect with your students. Yeah. And it goes back to what Becky was talking about and just creating that environment. Right. I mean, when you start off with low stakes questions that, that maybe have nothing to do with your, your content or what you're trying to accomplish that day, then students are more likely to just keep the conversation going or understand that they can volunteer information. I start every one of my live classes, whether they're face-to-face or online, with just a question. Sometimes that question is directly related to the content that we're going to talk about in a very like subtle way. Like They don't know it at first. Um, like, who would, you know, anyone dead or alive, who would you have dinner with tonight? You know, and then we, or sometimes it's just on a scale of one to 10, how you feeling today? How you doing? You know, give me a number. And you'll have students be like, six, seven, 10. And you have a students be like, two. Like this semester I had a student be like, two, because I have a COVID test out. Right? And it's just like, okay. So I know, all right. I need to check in on that student later because if they're going to have to go quarantine or they're going to have to go do something else, we might have to make some adjustments to some assignments or, or things like that. But it is, it just gives them a better sense of, whew, okay, this isn't the professor behind the podium. Right. Exactly. And that's what we want to, that's what we want to remove is sort of that yes. unapproachable barrier. Yes. And I think we have to work harder to remove it when we're not in person. Um, That's what I've been learning. And one of the things that I have always tried to do, but I think Wakanzi and and my experience there, and then that leading into COVID has really cemented this as a guiding philosophy is to always assume that other people are doing their best. And if I can approach life with that attitude then it just makes me a better person, right? Like, honest to goodness, if a student is going to plagiarize or turn something in late or come up with some crazy excuse, you know, I'm just going to assume that they're doing their best and and hope that we can get to a place where they feel like they can be honest with me and that I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to invalidate their concerns, right? Like, I've had students come to me this semester and just say, look, I'm having a really hard time, like, mental health wise. And I just wasn't able to get the assignment done on time. And I'll be like, cool, take a couple extra days. And yeah. <laughs> like, let's get it turned in when it's done and you feel good about it. Um, Cause in my experience, when students feel pressured and kind of backed up against the wall, like that's when plagiarism and yeah. cheating and like those types of things are going to happen. And so if we give them an opportunity to just be honest about what they're dealing with, um, then we can find a way to, work around it. And might there occasionally be a student that pulls a fast one on me? Probably. 
am I going to let it bother me? No, because right. if, if I do, then that causes my stress levels to go up and that's not good either. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume that we're all doing our best and that's how we're going to roll. You said it so much better than I do. I, I, I tell my students, I have two roles, uh, try not to suck and don't be an asshole. Uh, that's how I, <laughs> but your way is way better. <laughs> no, I mean you're right though. Honestly, I this is this is what's crazy to most people. I let my students pick their own due dates. I just say we go through, we go through an assignment, we go over the assignment directions. I'm like, all right, pull out your giant agendas, which amazes me how many of them still have paper agendas, like planners. Like but planners. whatever they do, they just flip. Through. I'm like, all right, pull out your planners, like. I want you to look at every assignment you have. I'm not so crazy to think that my one class out of your five is the only thing that's going on in your life right now. So look at your planners. Let's pick a date. And it's not like they pick a date three weeks out. Most of them are like, how about next Friday? It's like a week and three days. And everyone's like looking at their planner. Yeah, next Friday sounds good. They're like, can we do next Friday? I'm like, sure you can do next Friday. Works for me. Right? Like that's See, not I my agenda. You, I thought you meant... I thought you meant like everybody picks their own individual one. So I was like, "How? That's a grading nightmare. How do you?" I'm so like, "Why?" I tell you, I I will say that they some of them do be like, "Hey, they'll email me or contact me after class or stay after class." Be like, "I can't do next Friday. Can I?" Sure, have at it. Like, can I have till Sunday? Yeah, absolutely. You can have till Sunday. Because the thing is, that's how the real world works, right? right? That's how we operate as functioning adults in society. Sometimes we have really tight deadlines and we've got to figure out how to meet them. But if it's like, I'm not going to be able to do this, then you ask for an extension. And you know, what's the worst that could happen is you're told no, but might as well try. Because like you said, they're going to put more time and effort into doing that assignment if they have those extra two days than if they try to cram it in and just throw something together to meet an arbitrary deadline. Like, exactly. I don't. I'm not interested in you being able to crank this out in a week. I'm interested in you being able to put together a quality assignment. Exactly. The other thing that I would add to is that um, when we transitioned online last spring, there was a big emphasis on facilitating as smooth of a transition as possible for our undergrads, right? And and students that were in previously in-person classes that had to transition online, and we had that kind of two weeks. And there is this overall, I guess, kind of message that students who were in classes that had already been online, we would just continue business as usual. And let me tell you, my grad students were not business as usual. Like those students were dealing with the same things that all of us are dealing with. A lot of them are classroom teachers. So they had suddenly a situation where they needed to teach from home. They had young children at home. Um, I think that I probably made more accommodations for grad students last spring than I, I did for undergrads yeah. because of the life circumstances that they were facing. Yep. Yeah. And the same thing, my, my grad students are all teachers. Um, they all have, not all, several of them have children of their own. Their school got moved online. Their kids' school got moved online. Like that is a major disruption. I don't care who you are. You know, yeah. if you've been taking graduate online classes your whole life, it's still a, no one's prepared for that disruption. Look, I mean, the common theme that we have here is just empower your students, like give them a voice, give them a say, let them, you know, understand that you're a human, you're going to make mistakes, they're humans, they're going to make mistakes, 
But if we all come to some agreement, like, look, we're in this together, we're going to learn something together, then we're going to be all right, which is why I'm really excited about the faculty student roundtables that you're putting together as part of the Pashi Virtual Conference, the Pashi West, excuse me, virtual conference that we're hosting in December. Um, so can you talk about that structure and how that, that came to be? Yeah, definitely. So, um, Jeremy, you had mentioned the grant through the CTL for last year, which I unfortunately did not get to utilize because of COVID and because I wasn't able to go back to Wakansi. But my original idea for that grant was to um, to go back to the Wakansi conference with a group of students. And so to you know load up some students in a van, go to the conference together, they would go and do the student part, I would do the faculty part, and then we would come back to SRU and in the fall semester, which you know should be happening right now, we would facilitate an FLC. So it would be students and me facilitating an FLC for faculty. You're talking um, so about this was, as if like it's not gonna happen. You just not, oh, it's you totally just, you gonna just happen. don't get to do it yet. <laughs> like, you're gonna do this. Yeah. It's totally we're, gonna we're happen. We're holding you to this one. <laughs> so that was the idea, and then that couldn't happen this semester. It will happen later, not happening now. Um, and when we started to flesh out the plans for the Pashi West Conference, I thought, well, what if I could bring the spirit of Wakansi with these brave conversations involving students and faculty into an online space? What would that look like? Um, and around that same time that I started to ask those questions, the Gender Studies Club hosted a teaching conversations night, and I was invited to participate in that. Um, and it was fantastic. It was like, wow, this really could happen in an online environment. So I had reached out to one of the students who helped to organize that, um, who actually took um, a university seminar that I taught a couple of years ago. So I had had her in class before and was just like, hey, what would you think about this idea of, of putting something like this together for the conference? Like, do you think this is something students would be interested in? And um, she said, oh, my gosh, yes, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. So we started to kick around that idea a little bit more. Um, I brought that back to the CTL. We talked about it as a group um, and decided to go for it. So basically what it's going to be is a group of some really incredible students that I've honestly never, well, I think a couple of them are students that I've worked with in the past, but most of them are students that I don't know. So these are students that were recommended by other faculty members after I described kind of what the um, context would look like. And so I'm hoping that we will get a good group of students that have a lot of different kinds of experiences at SRU. And so to kind of backtrack for a minute to the wildlife management class and the service learning project, Unfortunately, a lot of times those types of experiences are reserved for high achieving students and they are the ones that get to participate yeah. in all of those cool things um, and other students don't get to. And so for the wildlife class, I really try to be mindful of making sure that that opportunity is available to all of our students and not only the ones that are the high achievers academically. Um, and so I think that the group that we have for the Pashi West student faculty roundtables is going to represent a, a lot of kind of diversity and ability and that type of thing, which is awesome. Um, and so the students are going to 
participate in two trainings with me and the Leadership Development Center. The first one is going to focus on Clifton strengths and strengths-based leadership. So that was something that I had the opportunity to do at Wakanzi. Um, and it's really learning about like your professional strengths and how you can best leverage them in your work. And what's so interesting about my strengths is when I learned about them, I thought, gosh, a lot of these things have previously been framed as negative things. But now I know that they're not negative things at all. Like they're good things about me that I can use to advance in my job. Like I think my my top one was achiever. And so I've been told, oh, you're such an overachiever, right? Like it's framed in a way that's negative right. or um, another one of my strengths is um, intellection, right? And so I like to like think deeply about things. I like to process things internally. And so that gets framed in a negative way when I'm told, oh, you're overthinking, you're being an overthinker, right? But it's like, that's who I am. Like, that's not going to change. This can actually be a, a good thing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um I'm also uh, a maximizer. So I really like to try to figure out like what other people's strengths are and help them to leverage those so that they can be successful. And it's so funny because we do this with the wildlife students. And when I tell them what mine are, because a lot of them have had me in class before, they're just like, oh my gosh, Dr. Thomas, that is so you. <laughs> that is so you. And they can see it. And so then we talk about like, okay, well, how do yours factor in? So for the student faculty roundtable facilitators, they're going to... Uh, do the Clifton Strengths inventory ahead of time. And then we're going to do a, a training on strengths-based leadership. And so when you're working with someone else in a leadership capacity, it can be really helpful to understand what their strengths are and yeah. how you can kind of complement each other in your leadership approach. Um, so that'll be the first training. And then the second training will be on facilitation. So the art of facilitation, how to facilitate um, difficult conversations. And the students are going to decide what they want the roundtable conversations to be about. So I have pitched a couple of ideas to them, um, and we will continue to talk about those over the course of these next couple of weeks with the trainings. But they are really going to be in the driver's seat of deciding what they want to talk about with their faculty. And then it's going to be bringing the students and faculty together um, in a way that can allow those conversations to happen. So for example, maybe we want to talk about mental health in the classroom and what that looks like. Um, maybe we want to talk about um, giving, getting feedback, right? Giving and receiving feedback, like what kind of feedback helps students to um, do better and what kind of feedback shuts them down? Like what right. do they kind of need to hear? Yeah. Um, and then on the faculty side, like what are some challenges that faculty face in giving feedback? And again, I think that goes back to maybe students not always understanding what kinds of constraints we're under, right? Like there's a reason I can't give you written feedback oh. on a paper the day after it's due. It's because it takes me an hour to grade each one and I have 50 of 60 them. 60 of you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, just kind of understanding that process um in that context it's awesome i i know sorry drop my fizzy water <laughs> i have a problem with fizzy waters no i know me personally i am really looking forward to that and i know the conversations that we've had with the rest of the committee members and, and in just in discussions about this it's one of the things that i'm really looking forward to because look 
as faculty, we can get up and we can, we love to talk. We know faculty love to talk. I mean, that's why we have a podcast because we just get to talk. But our students also love to talk and they deserve a voice in this conversation as well. And I love the collaborative approach uh, between students and faculty in, in sharing that, that message with everyone else because we have a lot to learn. And to kind of bring this all back full circle, just like community engaged learning, engaging our students in their own learning and giving them ownership and giving them a voice and understanding that we're all just partners in this. And I can learn as much from my students as my students can learn from me in, in many areas. So Dr. Thomas, Becky, we really appreciate your time and your thoughts. You are awesome. I, I don't believe that you've peaked um, yet. So that's good. <laughs> we look forward to uh, all the other things that you get to do here at Slippery Rock, in addition to that FLC that you will be facilitating uh, here very, very soon, hopefully. So thank you again. Yes, it will we seriously, sure. sin sincerely appreciate the time. My pleasure. The podcast for teaching and learning is produced and edited by me, Nick Artman, Assistant Professor of Communication. Your hosts are Jeremy Lynch, Associate Professor of Special Education, and Brian Danielson, the Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Slippery Rock University. This podcast is sponsored by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Slippery Rock University in Slippery Rock, PA. The mission of the Center for Teaching and Learning is to serve as a resource for faculty that fosters a culture of excellence and innovation in teaching, learning, and scholarship. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast for teaching and learning wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>